Today we're going to be reading from Galatians 5, verse 1, and then verses 13 through 16. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the, de the desires of the flesh. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you out today. We, of course, have a whole lot of folks uh, gone because of Carolina Bible Camp, uh, but we need to remember them, be praying for them, and that they have an opportunity to touch, I think, a couple hundred kids, something like that, every, every time. So be praying that uh, God's Spirit will be there, and, and there'll be open hearts and uh, wisdom, and the, the teaching and all the connections relationships that are formed will, will bring God glory and increase His kingdom. Glad to have all of you here today. We have, uh, we have visitors. I, I think it's the uh, Jordan and Mary's uh, um, last time here, which is sad. Um, we're, we're happy for her folks uh, and them all getting together. And maybe we can talk them all into moving here at some point, staying. But anyway, uh, God bless you all. We're happy to have met you and, and uh, wish you all the best. Uh, good to have all our folks from the Healing Transition, our friends uh, from men's and women's Healing Transitions, always uh, very encouraging. And anybody else uh, who's uh, visiting from the community, just please know that we, we are very uplifted by your presence. And what we're trying to do here at this church is, is pretty simple, and, I, and yet I would uh, say pretty profound, um, because we're trying to let God and His way uh, with humanity and with His world uh, reign supreme. And, and the, the, the way we do that is through Jesus and through His Word. And so we're continually going back to His Word here. That's, that's, uh, that's what we try to do as a church, just go back to the fountain that's the source of all goodness and all truth in the world, uh, and we just re re repeatedly visit that. We are not perfect as people. We're far from it. Um, but we believe God's Word is, and we believe God's Son is, and so that's what we're aspiring to be. All right, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, like I think it was two weeks ago maybe, in a sermon that I preached from the book of Galatians, um, a sermon called, uh, I don't remember what I called it exactly, something like keeping the good, the good in the good news. It was on that statement at the very beginning of Galatians. Do you remember the sermon, hopefully, two weeks ago? Um, Thank you. Appreciate, appreciate that. Uh, um, but it was about, you know, this, Paul's already, he preached the gospel, he's just left there, and already they're turning to a different gospel, which isn't another gospel, because there's only one gospel. But what they'd done is kept the word gospel, and they had, you know, uh, they liked the word good news, but the news had become actually not so good, because it becomes this story of, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know works-oriented salvation and or kind of a uh, culturally, uh, you know, uh, appropriated gospel that's um, limited to certain Jewish observances, and it's not being, uh, allowing the freedom to the Gentile Christian brothers and sisters uh, to, to just focus on Christ. And so we talked about ways we might uh, uh, allow the good news to become something less than good in our own lives. And I, I said in that sermon that I would be preaching, I was working on a, a sermon or maybe a series of sermons on freedom, freedom in Christ. And today I'm going to uh, bring that sermon. There might be others later, but obviously the most uh, timely day to preach a sermon on freedom 
would probably be next Sunday because that's the Sunday closest to the 4th of July. Right? And 4th of July, in our country anyway, we talk about freedom. It's in everything. I mean, businesses use it as marketing, for goodness sakes. We pray about freedom. We fly flags that symbolize freedom. And we just rejoice in the fact that we are a nation that has been devoted to freedom for over a couple of centuries. Uh, it celebrates our, na our nation's day of independence or freedom from another country. Um, and I'm not going to be here next Sunday, so I decided to do that, this sermon today. Now, obviously the USA, uh, like most modern nations, isn't mentioned in Scripture at all. We, the, the United States didn't exist for, you know, a lot, many, many years later. Um, and uh, the fact is, though, that there are many things in our nation's social life and cultural life, um, maybe political life, just our, our nation's uh, you know, sort of discourse that are uh, at least touched on in principle by things said in the Bible. Um, and uh, our, our historic and continuing emphasis on freedom is one of those things because uh, the Bible says a good bit about freedom. Now, now, since the 1770s or so, maybe in some ways a little bit before that, the folks who became our nation's founding fathers began to talk about how, you know, the British government was treating them as slaves. This was just in all the newspapers and sermons and uh, articles and speeches were being enslaved by the British. The, the colonists in America are being treated like slaves. They don't have this kind of freedom and that kind of freedom. So this talk of slavery and freedom is already in the water well before uh, the Declaration of Independence is actually uh, you know, made public on July 4th, 1776. So the tax on tea was slavery. Taxation without representation in the parliament was slavery. You know, you're enslaving us. In fact, there's an earlier... Uh, this is a really nerdy point, but there's an earlier draft of the Declaration of Independence Thomas Jefferson had worked on that talks all about, it tries to link Britain and slavery, how they're enslaving uh, the Americas and so on, and, and the other founders said, no, we're stri striking that out, because most of the founding fathers were slaveholders. So that was a very touchy subject from the get-go. At any rate, ever since the July 4th, 1776 date in the Declaration of Independence, Americans have cherished freedom. I mean, we talk about it all the time. Um, but we've also struggled over the meaning of freedom. And I, I don't know, this isn't a history lesson this morning. It's a lesson about the Bible. But the point is, the Bible has quite a, li a lot to say about freedom. And a lot of that comes from Galatians 5. And so given our nation's passion for freedom, it, it seems like, to me, a fairly logical thing to say, that, that most of us who, maybe all of us hopefully, who are Christians in a nation so interested in freedom, so passionate about freedom, it seems that those of us in this country who aspire to follow Jesus and follow His Word would want to incorporate a biblical perspective on freedom. Freedom is what God says it is, not what Thomas Jefferson said it was, right? He may have got some of it right. I, that's, that's another discussion. But we, we need to care about the kind of freedom that, that Jesus brings. So this morning, I want to ask the question, what does what does Galatians 5, and, and through that lens, the larger New Testament, teach us about freedom? Because we read right here in, in just this paragraph that uh, Jordan read a second ago, or actually an excerpt from a couple of paragraphs, we already see the word freedom popping out a lot. For freedom, Christ has set us free. You were called to freedom, only do not use your freedom. You know, it, it's all through this section. It's kind of the theme of this part of, of the letter to the Galatians. So let's talk this morning for a few minutes about what it means to be called to freedom. Just to use a phrase right out of Galatians chapter 5. Chapter 5 verse 13, we as Christians are called to freedom. What can Galatians 5 and the New Testament in general teach us about freedom? 
The first point is a pretty obvious one. If, if you're just looking at, you know, counting up text, the weight of text, and that is that uh, freedom is very central to the Christian walk. This isn't some peripheral thing or footnote thing or, oh yeah, there's this thing about freedom. We may in our mind not have made it central, but the Bible, I, I would say, would put it front and center. Um, and this is evident in the sheer weight of the New Testament text and the kinds of things it's connected to thematically, the important central topics that it's connected to. This just cries out that freedom should be central to who we are as Christians. It's at the heart of what we are and who we are. It's in uh, several of the writings of Paul. Uh, freedom appears in the writings of Peter, in James's epistle. So it's all over the New Testament. And, and, and it's not just the number of times it appears, it's the things the New Testament says about it. So for freedom, Christ has set us free. That, that's kind of a restatement of what he's done in the gospel at the cross. I mean, this is what he did for you. It was for freedom in some sense. And then down in verse 13, we were called to freedom. You ever hear people talk about their calling? We're called by the gospel. The Bible talks a lot about being called to this or called to that. Usually it's a kind of mission that you're you know, anointed to do or something like that. Our calling, brethren and sister, brethren? Brethren and sustren? <laughs> Brothers and sisters is, is freedom. An exceedingly biblical statement, quoting right here. You were called to freedom. That sounds like the core of things. That doesn't sound like some edge, you know, the periphery of what we're involved in. Jesus himself uh, said uh, as much uh, essentially in John chapter 8. He said to the Jews in verse 31 who had believed him, and here are his words to them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's some sort of enslavement or bondage that you're in but when you become my disciples and you, you submit and, and begin to take in and, and consume and be defined by and transformed by my truth, you're going to be made free from whatever that is. Now, they don't really, this doesn't resonate initially because their response, we'll see in a minute, is like, we're not, we're not enslaved, but they're talking, they're using the word freedom and bondage, the words freedom and bondage, but they're, they mean different things. And that's the problem often in our discourse. What do we mean by freedom? What should a Christian mean by freedom? What kind of freedom should we care most about? And then um, in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 17, there's an astounding statement made here also by the Apostle Paul. He says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. One of the evidences that the Spirit is in the room, that the Spirit is in your heart, that the Spirit is in this church, where the Spirit of the Lord is, how do you know? There's freedom. That's pretty astounding to say something like that. It's, an, it's presented as an automatic, necessary, kind of organic result of the Spirit's presence. If you have the Spirit, you have freedom. And we won't talk about what some of the corollaries might mean. If we're walking around enslaved to things and not free in some sense, in the biblical sense, then you could argue the Spirit really isn't there. You may be doing a really good job of playing church and going through the right things and feeling really good about yourself and everything's proper. The Spirit may not be there. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we want to talk about what that means this morning. It's not the only time, as, you, as you've already seen, that Paul talks about this. I want to make just this basic point here. It's a really fundamental, kind of simple point, but I think a very important one, biblically speaking. And it's this. We need to make freedom part of our Christian vocabulary. It needs to be 
a central part of our, our, our Christian thinking, our outlook, our worldview, and of our practice. If it's an evidence that the Spirit is there and we are called to it, then we need to be very worried if freedom isn't in it. We don't even think about that. Or we clamp down on it more than biblically we should. Because it should be right up there with, we ought to, it ought to be having the same amount of airtime as those other great gospel terms. Because it's a great gospel term too. Terms like, you know, um, grace and faith and obedience and hope and love and holiness and all these great biblical themes that run throughout Scripture from the beginning to the end. Freedom is there too. And so it ought to be getting the same sort of airplay, same sort of time and, and attention and, and devotion uh, as these do as well. But what does freedom mean? What does it mean? It's one thing to say freedom is central to everything. All right, but right then, probably there's 14 different ideas, at least possibly, in this very group, in this building right now. What comes to mind when I hear the word freedom versus when you hear it versus when somebody out there on the street hears it? What does it actually mean? Because freedom, a word, like many words, can mean different things to different people. And this is certainly the case historically. One of the things I like to assign when I'm teaching uh, American history courses is um, sometimes the whole whole autobiography, but a lot of times um, Frederick Douglass, or sometimes just there's usually not time to read all that in a survey course that I typically am assigned. But I'll, I'll assign a speech or two by Frederick Douglass. Uh, and I don't know if you know Frederick Douglass, most of you, anybody, who, everybody know Frederick Douglass? Um, a slave in Maryland who uh, escaped, got his freedom. Um, it was illegal after the 1830s in the American southern states to teach a slave to read. It was illegal. Can't teach him to read. They were worried about, they'd read the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> or they'd read the Bible, which talks a whole lot about liberty and the golden rule. And so... Plenty of, of, of owner, slaveholders you know, who were Christians would violate that in secret. And Frederick Douglass, to his credit, had one. He got sold stuff three or four times. But he had one um, uh, woman uh, who was the wife of the, the slaveholder who taught him some to read. And he would learn by looking at signs on the docks of Baltimore, the wharves of Baltimore, and so on. He was a genius. There's no question about it. If you ever read one paragraph from the guy, you're like, especially when we, what we know about learning literacy and neurology and all that. The fact that he could learn to read and be that rhetorically gifted, he was, he was uh, an outlier. But anyway, he became, up north in the, the, the late antebellum period, before the Civil War, a prominent speaker, you know, for abolitionism. And I want uh, to, just to illustrate this point about freedom can mean different things to, to different people, he was asked to deliver uh, an oration on the 4th of July in 1852. He gave it instead on the 5th of July in 1852. Because he said, slaves don't see the July 4th like you do. Audience was pretty much white. It's up in Boston or somewhere in New England. And all these, you know, anti-slavery friends are out there. But he wanted the whole nation to hear. He knew this would be published, and it was. It became an instant classic. One of the greatest speeches in American history, in my opinion. Here's what he said. This is an excerpt. It's things like 15 pages long. Here's what he said. The name of the speech is, What to the Slave is the 4th of July? Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice that are embodied in the Declaration of Independence, are they extended to us? 
He's speaking, talking about people of color, most of whom were enslaved. Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions, whose chains, heavy and grievous yesterday, are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. If I do forget, if I do not faithfully remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, and here he quotes a psalm, may my, hand, may my right hand forget her cunning and my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted freedom, an unholy license. Your national greatness and swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciations of tyrants around the world, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality are hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him, to the slave, mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. Freedom to one person isn't necessarily freedom to another. What's freedom mean? You see what I'm saying? So we've got to talk about what does freedom mean biblically. That's what we care about. The God who made us knows much more about the kind of freedom that we need and should aspire to than any human being could know who isn't instructed by the will of the Lord. In our culture today, and through much of our history, in, in general usage, aside from a specific issue like the question of slavery in our nation's history, but in general usage in our culture, and in the culture of the modern West probably, freedom kind of means something like this. The absence of external restraints. Wouldn't you say that's kind of what it means if somebody says, we have freedom, what does that mean? It means nobody tells me what, no government is coming in and telling me what to do. You know, I, I can do what I want pretty much. Life, liberty, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. It's getting rid of things. Namely, artificial limitations. Strictures that are imposed externally from without upon you. Get rid of that and you have freedom. I think that's kind of a working definition of what we often mean in our culture generally now, it can have a social uh, application or a cultural one or a religious one or a political one. The restraints can come from a lot of different areas. But people, when they hear the word freedom out on the street in, in our part of the world, in our day and time, often means something like absence of, of external, getting rid of the external restraints. And, and I want to say, uh, incredibly grateful for this country. My favorite country in the world. Not even close. Um, duh. Uh, and that's not only because I'm, I was reared here, you know, and I'm a homer. Right? It's because I think some of those documents by our founders were, were genius. And, and I, I, I kind of believe God's providence was involved in some of that. I, have, I can't prove that. But I'm very thankful for this country. Um, and, and one of the things that means is um, we've we got to call it like we see it. And I think a lot of times our culture and our, our national discourse about freedom, we don't have a lot to say about freedom of substance after Let's get rid of external restraints. That's kind of what we have to offer. And then we're kind of mute. We're kind of uh, a little bit, you know, discombobulated. When we, you know, what do we do with that then, though? That's not what we've said historically. It's life, liberty, and what? Pursue your happiness, I pursue mine. That's your call. You write your own story. You make up your own narrative. Who can, who can tell you what to do? That's kind of where we leave it. And so what happens after the limits and restrictions are removed is mostly left to individual choice. 
And so we make sacrosanct things like self-expression. I should be able to express myself however I want. All right? Or uh, I can choose whatever version of morality I want. Who are you to tell me? That might be the more liberal, progressive end of the spectrum. But there's a, there is a conservative version of this, too. Usually it's financial. I made my money. I should be able to use it and keep it however I want. Don't you dare tax me. Taxation is legalized plunder, all that. Right? I used to be a hardcore libertarian, so I know all the jargon. Um, actually worked on a libertarian newspaper in college. I've read all the Austrian economics and all the Milton Friedman and all those people. Adam Smith. Y'all remember Adam Smith, right? Because I got on to you a few months ago for not knowing who he was. Anyway, um, but is that what freedom is biblically? I just get the restraints gone and that's it. And then I, it's up to the individual to sort of create his or her reality. What about the way the New Testament uses freedom? That's what I want to do in the rest of our lesson. I want to look at this from two sides because there are really two parts here, two halves to the answer. The first of which, and I've talked about this before, I've used this phrase at least, is a kind of freedom from, if you will. Um, it's freedom in the negative. And, and ever since, so, so freedom from, there, there's a biblical sense in which this is true as well. Ever since Christianity started, and, and I'm using the, the New Testament here as, as my evidence, ever since it started, almost from the get-go, there have been those who would impose religious restrictions and requirements on Christians that were more restrictive than what Christ required. Jesus had more negative to say to the Pharisees than rank pagans and just immoral people. He was gentle with the woman caught in adultery. He had a lot of very critical things, kind of harsh things to say to the religious leaders who should have known better, who had built fence after fence after fence upon the Torah and the prophets. And I don't think it would be even nearly accurate to call the Pharisees loosey-goosey liberals. They were conservatives. They were trying to, to pr protect this, you know, beautiful heritage. Um, and there were good things about that. The, the sentiment was good, you know. Jesus said in Matthew 23, in that scathing rebuke of the Pharisees, a chapter-long rebuke of the Pharisees, he says, look, they're trying to, you know, tithe mint, anise, and cumin. Um, but they've left that on the way to your matters of law. But then he says, these they ought to have done, but not left the other undone. He, you know, there's some good things about that sentiment of trying, to, of trying to be as devoted and holy and uh, committed to Scripture as you possibly can. But is the goal to be more restrictive than Scripture? To take what you traditionally have developed over the years and say, that's got the same way to Scripture. That better not be violated. That is one of the biggest problems in the New Testament. A version of that is in Galatians, where they try to sort of keep it more Jewish in a limited way. Um, than it is binding circumcision and holy days and things like that. Uh, we see this problem. Uh, you know, it was a circumcision party. We talked about this two weeks ago in the sermon. They were binding certain works of the Jewish law upon Gentile Christians. And kind of, it's sort of a move of, of cultural imperialism in a way. Um, that's in the churches of Galatia, one of the earliest letters written in our New Testament. And then at the church of Colossae, it's difficult precisely to know what was going on. You know, the theology behind the, the problem Maybe elements of Judaism, maybe an early form of Gnosticism, maybe something else. People speculate. There's a lot of clues, but it's hard to, there's no center, sort of central statement of here's the heresy at Colossae that's, that's sort of in process. But uh, some people there, from what Col the letter of Colossians tells us, were binding upon Colossian Christians numerous holy-sounding, religious-sounding regulations and restrictions. 
everything from special holy days that you must observe to asceticism, that word's used two times, I think, in chapter 2, which means uh, you know, abstaining from various food and drink. And if this chapter weren't in there, I think a lot of us would go, there's good people right there. The problem is, it's called error. It's a deviation from Jesus. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I, want to do, I do want to quote a couple passages just to show you how, here's the point, Christ frees us from that kind of bondage. He frees us from that. And it's, it's, there's more than one place in the New Testament where this is talked about at length. That's why I'm saying this ought to be elevated to the level of holiness, love, grace, all those other big Bible words, those big gospel words. So in Galatians, we'll just look at uh, uh, Galatians 5, 1 through 4. And this is one of the passages that, are, uh, that, that uh, Jordan read earlier. For freedom Christ has set us free, Galatians 5, 1. Stand firm, therefore. Take a stand. You've heard somebody say, we need to take a stand. Take a stand for not taking a stand when you shouldn't. That's what he's saying. People are asking them, demanding that they take these stands that God didn't give them. That's wrong too. And he's saying, stand, freedom, Christ sets you free for freedom. Stand firm in that. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. It may feel holy and religious and righteous. That's not it. If it's not coming from here, if it's not coming from Jesus. And let's read the rest because it gives us more particularly what he's talking about there. It's that circumcision party who were binding circumcision because it was one of the more um, noteworthy signs of the covenant between God and his people Israel, between the Jews, who have now become Christians. But they're also they're binding that on Gentile Christians. And the, the law, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures were a schoolmaster, a guide, um, a tutor, uh, you know, a guardian to bring everyone to Christ. Now that we've got to Christ, that's been fulfilled, not, not you know, made ir- irrelevant at all. It's a Jew- Christ is a Jewish Messiah. But as Paul writes in the Roman, to the Romans, the Gentiles are being grafted onto that, and you don't have to keep all of those, those cultural, uh, you know, Jewish cultural expressions. You're, it's, it's concluded in Christ. It's culminated and climaxed in Christ, and you're free from that. So look what he says in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Listen to how serious the language is if you give up your freedom here. A lot's at stake. I'm just reading this. Verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. He's not talking about if you've been medically circumcised. He's talking about if that's, you've got this theological uh, you know, view that circumcision is, it, 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 you've got to keep this in order to have a, a covenant relationship with God. He says, if that's your view, you better be keeping the whole law. And if you go over a chapter earlier in Galatians, he says that's basically, nobody does that. That's moot. Um, you're trying to keep the law, you're, you're under the curse because you, if you break one law, you're out. That doesn't work. That path to righteousness and covenant relationship does not work. Verse 4, look at this. You're severed from Christ. You would who be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. And it's not just circumcision. There's other things mentioned elsewhere in the letter. But it's this idea that we're going to tack these things onto you that we believe you've got to do. And Paul's saying, you don't have to do those things. Don't let anybody make you submit to this yoke of slavery. Now, the Colossian letter is a little more complicated. It's got some of the same language. But there's this other stuff going on, too. So it's hard to know exactly what the nature, theologically, of this uh, deviation from the gospel was. But let's read the correction here. Uh, some excerpts from chapter 2 in Colossae. 
or rather the, the letter to the Colossians. So he writes to the Colossian Christians, Paul does, same author, different audience, and says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and builded up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So I want you to, basically what he's saying, walk in Jesus, be rooted and build it up in Jesus. That's it. It's all about Jesus. Get rooted in him, grow in him. It's from, from day one to the end of time. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's it. That's the answer. Then he says, verse 8, So, see to it that no one takes you captive. That's slavery language, isn't it? No one puts shackles on you. No one puts you in bonds by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition. Now we may go, oh, that's just talking about secular liberalism. It's human tradition and philosophy. First of all, the word philosophy in, in the Greek doesn't mean like what we, philosophy professor, you know, with the beard and, and I'm not sure, you know, that, that guy. Uh, it, this, is, this is a much more broad word than that. And when you read on, it's very religious, the human tradition that he's talking about. Right? Some things that sound like it's messing around a little bit with the, the Old Testament. Verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you. If you're rooted in Christ Jesus and walking in Him, you should not allow anyone to pass judgment on you or take you captive. In questions of what? Food and drink? I don't think you should eat this. I don't think you should drink this. I think that's what holiness looks like. Don't let them take cap you take captive if it's not in the Bible. I'm just basically restating it, I think. If you think I'm distorting this, please tell me afterwards. But I, I think this is pretty straightforward stuff. We just don't always take it in. Um, if you don't regard a certain festival or new moon or Sabbath as a holy day you've got to observe, and this person thinks you should, don't let them take you captive with that. Don't let them pass judgment on you. I mean, you, you don't, can't stop what people are thinking about you, but you don't have to be beholden to that. And then in verse 20, sort of summing it up, if with Christ you died, isn't that what we do at baptism? Romans 6, the same author says when we're, when we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. We're raised to walk in newness of life. That's what he's evoking here. He says, if, you, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world? You're not worldly anymore. You've died to that. You're in Christ. Why do you still submit to these regulations? These are coming from the church. They're coming from Colossae. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Evidently, some people were saying things like that. And then Paul says, this refers to things that all perished as, perish as they're used. They're according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting a self-made religion and asceticism, abstaining all the time, and severity to the body. They, they feel really holy and religious. But they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's another form of fleshliness. Another form of worldliness. That's, that's the language he's using. You're, you're dead to the world. Don't be held captive by that. Don't be enslaved by that. So that's one half of the answer of, of gospel freedom. There's a freedom we have in Christ from all that. And so refusing to be beholden to such extra-biblical tradition isn't liberal or loosey-goosey. It's Christ-honoring. It's biblical. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. You see what I'm saying? So this, this has got to be part of our thinking because it's very much a part of Paul's writing and Peter's and James's and Jesus and John 8 and some other places. 
All right. Huge but now. But stopping here, if I just said, okay, there's the lesson. I know I should. It's time to stop, but we're not going to. But if I did, that would leave us with a half-truth. And you know what they say about half-truths? They're lies. Half-truth is a distortion of the truth. This freedom from these extra-biblical restraints and requirements and regulations is crucial. That's part of following Jesus, 101. But according to the New Testament, there is another kind or another aspect of freedom that we've got to discuss, and that's freedom to. It's not just freedom from. It's freedom to. There's a great irony, really, that this is going to kind of touch on. And that irony is this. When we define freedom only as the absence of restraints and limits. I'm not talking now about whether they're restraints brought by your brothers and sisters in Christ, sort of like in Colossae or something like that. That are that We all do that all the time. We come up with a restraint that we go, is that biblical or not? And that's one of the things we have, to, you know, we have to struggle with our whole lives. That we're trying to understand the word and parse that out from tradition. Every one of us struggles with that. We always will. Word came to us in, in time, right? It's, it's a letter to Galatia or Corinth. And so we've got to parse out the then and there versus the here and now. What does that mean? That's, that's honest, good, good you know, mature work to do. But sometimes the restraints are though from the church. Sometimes the restraints from you know, politics and governments and tyrants and all that. Either way, if your definition of freedom is limited to absence of restraints, absence of all limits... Here's the irony. You will ultimately find yourself less free, not more free. If your notion of freedom is, good, no restraints at all, from my church, from my government, from culture, from tradition, from my parents, from my school teachers, there's just no restraints, I'm free. You are hop, skipping a jump away from being enslaved. Because that's not what freedom in the Bible means. It might mean, it may mean what Thomas Jefferson meant. I don't know what he was thinking. The modern West definitely uses that that way. We are quick to, use the, to follow the words, a discussion of freedom with discussion of judgment, aren't we? Don't judge me. Because we really think the whole answer is get the restraints gone. Look what Galatians 5 says. You were called to freedom, verse 13, brothers. You're called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And he, go, he changes gears and begins to talk about that. This is the other half, without which we don't have the truth on freedom. I'm going to share with you a quote from an author I've been reading here lately, a book called Surrender to Love by David Benner. He says, created from love and for love. We were created because of God's loving nature, and, and we were created for love. Love God, love your neighbor. Humans, according to the Christian account of things, spurned God's love in favor of what was perceived to be freedom. It's talking about the Garden of Eden. The result, of course, was disastrous. Liberty was instantly replaced by bondage. Bondage of sin. Intimacy was replaced by alienation. Genuine love was reduced to self-love. And the result was egocentricity and estrangement from our deepest self and from God, and from other people. Deep down, however, something within us seems to remember the garden within which we once existed. You ever heard the song Woodstock by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young? 
Got to get ourselves back to the garden. These are hippies headed to Woodstock. They want to be in the garden. I mean, I know how to look for it, but that's a noble goal. We're trying to get back. We remember collectively in our human consciousness, on the fringes of our existence, there's this garden where everything was, there was shalom and thriving and peace and love and harmony and freedom. Part of us longs to return. We know this is where we belong, but another part of us seems bent on living out our illusions of freedom and autonomy. We tell ourselves that we can create other gardens in which to find soul rest and encounter love. But what we create are weed-infested gardens of compulsion and idolatry. Faint residues of a memory of perfect love seem to flit at the edges of human consciousness. Such memories are so weak that they are easily ignored. They remain, however, the core of our deepest desires, all human longings pointing to the source. God. Right on. I just think that's really good. What are we free to? We're free from these external restraints that are anything but the restraints Christ would put on us. What are we free to? Well, we're free to love. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Most people spend their life, and they do it in sophisticated ways that look socially acceptable. I get that. We're smart. But most people are spending most of their waking moments and, and, you know, calories and effort and time and opportunity pursuing stuff that ultimately is about them or theirs. It's not other-oriented like love is. They're following their own desires. They're demanding their own demands of others. But he's saying freedom means through love serving other people. Living a life in service to somebody else. Biblically, fundamentally, in the Bible, love is an other orientation. Putting somebody else's interests and desires and needs ahead of your own. Even to the point of sacrificing your own for them. The cross epitomizes it. And it's no wonder Paul links freedom with love. Love is our truest destiny as human beings. You want to be truly human? Be, be the, 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 your greatest self? Your freest self? Learn about love. Learn about how to forget yourself and elevate other people. That's what the Bible repeatedly says. Love's our truest destiny as human beings. And all humans are made in the image of God, right? Every human being is made in the image of God. And 1 John tells us that God is what? Love. Amen. So if God is love, and I'm made in His image, I am most myself and most godlike at the same time as I learn to love more, which means to learn to think less about myself and more about y'all and my community and my wife and my kids and all the other people that I ignore or harm or you know, run roughshod over or I'm complacent about. This is counterintuitive. This is not what any human logic would, would come up with, right? That through forgetting ourselves in this kind of loving service to other people, we become our most free self. Who's talking about that on 4th of July? Nobody. In churches they are, thank God, sometimes. But that, that's not really in the narrative. It's you be free so you can go be you. 
You get to be your best self. You get to decide your story. You get to express yourself, figure out your own morality, keep your own money to yourself because you earned it. All the while, there's people dying around you who could use a little help. And a whole lot of Bible passages calling us to help them. But if it's about us, and that's what freedom means, it's going to be a pretty distorted thing. And it's enslaving, ultimately, to follow the flesh. Jesus said to those Jews who had believed him, John 8, 31, 32, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. And they say, we're the offspring of Abraham. I've never been enslaved to anyone. First of all, false. Egypt? Anybody? But anyway, how is it that you say you will become free? Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You can have zero external restraints from a government or a church member or anything else. And the minute you act like a human being in sin, you're starting down the path of bondage. And it's a much more fundamental kind of bondage, a much more devastating kind ultimately than any other kind. And it's universal, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we've got to do something about this problem of the flesh. Um, the whole law, Paul writes in Galatians 5, a little further down, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What he calls the second great command, you know, elsewhere, Jesus does. But he says, if you're biting and devouring one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. In other words, do you want to kill your, your church family? Just keep on insisting on your own way. Right? Bite and devour, it's going to be gone before long. And not only that, it's much broader than that. Because he he goes seamlessly into works of the flesh. Do you realize that a lot of binding things you feel like you got to do can be a work of the flesh? That's actually the, 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 the teaching in Galatians 5. Otherwise, why does he go into straight from whether you can be saved by law keeping and all that and binding the law to flesh versus spirit? Is it just a new topic all of a sudden? No, he keeps referring back to the law. So he wants us to be people who are moral and holy and to do the kinds of ethical things the law taught. But what creates that in us? What creates that transformation? It's not following the flesh because that that creates all these problems, internal and external, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. That's how churches and countries and families end up if people are defining freedom as I ought to get what I want. And he's saying it's freedom to love one another in selfless service. That doesn't come out of us. We don't create that. That doesn't come out of the world. You're not going to pick that up on the streets or watching television. That has to come from outside ourselves. We've got to be changed from the inside out somehow. We've got to be transformed. And that's the last thing I want to say. The only way this can happen is through the Spirit of God. And that's why he changes gears to talk about about this. Verse 16 of of Galatians 5. But I say, instead of you in your own false freedom, following your own flesh, your own internal instincts, your own ego, your own sense of what, you know, is good and, 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 you know, you would like or is comfortable or you desire, you know, He says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. See, he goes right back to the law-keeping thing. 
And then gives us a picture of what the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we are free, amen, but we're free to live in the example and, 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 and from the impulse of the indwelling spirit of God within us. Amen? Amen. Thanks a lot for your attention today. Um, sorry for going so long, as always. Yeah. Last week I didn't, but nobody, nobody gave me enough accolades, so I just went back to my old thing. <laughs> Maybe because it's like three minutes shorter. Maybe I got to do like 13 shorter. Anyway, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to stand and sing a song. If we can help anybody here come to the Lord, uh, you know, through, through baptism, permission of sins, into Jesus to become a child of His, praying for you, setting up a Bible study to talk about something in the Bible you're curious about, or any way that we can, we, we want to help you grow closer to God. We're trying to help each other do that every day, right? So while, we, while we're singing, if you want uh, some, some help in that way or want to air something like that, come down to one of these front chairs and we'll do our best to help you. Let's all stand together and sing.